RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 23, The Icarus Factor, First Draft, July 11th, 1988. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back to The Trek Files, all you Star Trek fans, all background fans, our Trek historians, and of course, by that, I do mean you Trekophiles, spelled with an F. We've got a really interesting show today, and again, I love talking to folks that a lot of you may not uh, know, folks that I may not know from uh, Trek storied history. We see so many names passing by on the screen. Um, not all of them wind up with um, 42 DVD documentary interviews or convention appearances. Um, and we're going to go traveling to a time and era that's actually been covered at length, and yet there are still so many gaps. The Next Generation's second season. So look. Uh, we have a great doc to get us into that era. Take a listen, as always. You can find the uh, documents right there at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. So find that, read along. Here's a segment, and then I'll be right back with this week's guest. Interior, guest quarters. Riker and his father enter. Riker, didn't even know you are in the area. Kyle, how could you? We haven't spoken in months. They stop in the middle of the room. Riker allows the edge in the remark to sail over his head. Riker, how was the conference? Kyle, great. I got a chance to rhapsodize about the Alaskan tundras and the giant ice flows. Riker, you always get poetic when you talk about the environment. Kyle, it's inspiring. What can I tell you? Riker, where's the next conference going to be? Kyle, on our beloved planet. In two years, they wanted me to chair it. Riker, are you? Kyle, no. Too much politics, bureaucracy, and red tape. Riker, you were never comfortable with that stuff. Kyle, right. A rugged individualist. Yes, indeed, he trekled files. <laughs> we're going to visit the second season of Next Generation. Now, the, in particular, the second half of the second season. Next Generation was about to pivot in a big way. We were on the eve of Maury Hurley, who had emerged as the showrunner, suddenly not being the showrunner, on his way out the door. Uh, Michael Wagner coming in for five seconds before Michael Pillar, poor thing, inherited a crazy, already-in-motion third season. And the rest, as they say, is history. We know what happened from the third season of Next Generation onward. Thanks to Chaos on the Bridge, William Shatner's documentary, we've finally been able to pull the curtain back on so much of what was what was chaotic about, especially the writing staff, out of the gate with Next Generation, the first season. And we've talked about that here. We're privy to so many documents. I think the second season, even though we know it was pivotal, um, hasn't been examined as much. And so that's why I'm so thrilled to have our guest today, who's had a long, long career in TV writing and now has some interesting personal projects of his own. He was a supervising producer, producer on the second half of that second season, Bob McCullough. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Larry. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. Now, I'm just, you had your share of training and credits 
Um, I'm seeing that you wrote your first complete story, Johnny Jet's race car at seven. Oh my God! Uh, where, yeah. where are you getting this stuff? Oh, an obscure little site called IMDb, actually. Oh, okay. But uh, right. no, no, you work with uh, Grant Tinker, Gary Marshall, Fred Silverman, Lou Wasserman. Um, had credits and work on Mission Impossible, Mannix, Laugh In, The Immortal, Happy Days, Odd Couple, Laverne and Shirley. Uh, production work on all of those. Uh, a lot of the shows from the 60s and the 70s, then gradually built your writing career up. Uh, features, um, well, just a, a whole long list here. I'll let you tell me what your, what maybe the highlight was. But we, we've got our document this week here are these early drafts of The Icarus Factor, which is infamous for Star Trek fans for both Worf's Ascension Chamber and introducing pain sticks to the Trek universe. Uh, and also, in, in Catherine Pulaski's Diana Mulder's uh, brief tenure on the show, probably maybe one of the most interesting chapters with this invented history between her and the lone appearance of Riker's dad, Kyle Riker. So why don't we, um, you know, it's, it's a good lesson in how shows are put together. Um Let's 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 talk about how you came sure. to the show first. Sure. Well, I had uh, had some prior success uh, working on Falcon Crest, which was really a nighttime soap mm-hmm. opera. And uh, when I left that show, I think I bounced around to a couple of others. But the writer strike took place, and everybody was pretty much at the beach for a long time. And then I got <laughs> a call from my agents at CAA asking me if I was a Star Trek fan, and I said, actually, I was. My only familiarity with Star Trek had been as a production assistant gopher at Paramount Desilu Studios during the original series of Star Trek. We shared. I I was working on a show called Mission Impossible Uh with with Bruce Geller and that whole crew. And we shared office space with the production and writing team on the original Star Trek. And William Shatner and other actors from that series would come in occasionally to pick up script sides or have meetings or whatever. And they were wearing, I thought they were pajamas. I said, why aren't these people dressed properly? You know, <laughs> and, and I, I found, frankly, the costumes were absolutely laughable. So I had zero interest in watching the show and never followed a single episode. I had no awareness of it whatsoever when I went in to meet with Maurice Hurley and Gene Roddenberry, and they were just looking for some instant writing help. Well, how did you even get on that on that radar after the strike? Where they well, just, you know, yeah. uh, my agents, I guess, you know, that was their job. They, mm-hmm. they had the radar antenna, and they just said, "Hey, do you want to work on Star Trek: The Next Generation?" I said, "Sure. What is it?" <laughs> and they said, "They told me what it was and where it was, and the fact that it was at Paramount, where I, I had really begun my career, was kind of an you know enticing." Mm-hmm. And I went and had a meeting with them, and Maurice Hurley was such an engaging, gregarious – he was something else. I'll put it that way. He was fun to be in the room with. Oh, okay. Uh, Roddenberry was kind of leaning back in his chair, assessing things very quietly. I don't think he said three words in that initial meeting. And then I got the call later that afternoon saying, well, they want you to report on Monday, and they have office space for you. And that's what I did. Wow. Okay. Had a nice had a nice parking spot. Had a beautiful office with my own bathroom on the third floor of the writers' building, mm-hmm. and um, that was really one of the issues for me. In that I was in this sanctuary, if you will, third floor above everybody, 
And I never saw anybody all day. My job was just, you know, do some writing, come up with script ideas. Maurice Hurley and I would go have lunch, and he would tell me what he saw as the issues. At that time, Bert Armus was a producer on the show as well. Mm -hmm. And I think I had maybe 15 minutes of time with Bert because he was really out the door. Um, You're coming in mid-year, we should say, too. I'm coming in mid-year. And the impression I'm getting on, on my second meeting outside of Gene Roddenberry's presence was that things were kind of a mess. <laughs> and Maurice Hurley had very little respect for the material that was coming out of other writers. And he wanted somebody around who was fun and imaginative and who wasn't locked into the Roddenberry universe, if you will. Hmm. I certainly wasn't because I was still critical of the wardrobe. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And yeah. um, No, that fresh take is – I mean a lot of times people want someone like that in the mix, right? Right, right. Yeah. So I, I was basically just hired I think out of their sheer desperation for some help, you know. Um, so well, having – Can I ask you real quick? Did you do sure. any other – coming out of the strike, everyone's trying to staff up. Did you do any other interviews at other series or was this like this came along? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. It came along. The offer was great and I loved the, I loved the studio it was at. You know, I had kind of a – um, a long history with Paramount. So, um, you know, that worked in, in favor of me taking the gig. That's and great. Then, and then when Maurice Hurley said, you can write anything you want, man, just make sure the characters have something good to say. That's all I had to hear. That's a blank check, sounds like. Okay. And then they handed me, um, I forgot who walked into my office, the line producer, a uh, really nice guy. Uh, David Livingston? Yes, Livingston. Yeah, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. He came into my office and handed me a phone book. And the phone book was the guide, the Bible, if you will. And it had all the schematics and drawings and technical details of the Starship Enterprise. Not much about characters, but only about science mm-hmm. and technology. And he said, whatever you do, don't deviate from this because <laughs> we're not going to shoot it. Right? No pressure. So I, so I flipped through this thing. And, you know, I'm not the guy who took advanced algebra i found the whole thing incredibly tedious set it aside and i called my wife and i said what do you think we should do and she said well talk about the people now you have to understand something i'd had this very successful run at falcon crest dealing with Mm -hmm. characters writing stories about people and families and that's where the idea came up uh, from for giving Riker some family history Jonathan Frakes was a really nice guy, really good actor, handsome leading man guy. And I really wanted to kind of focus on him to a great degree. So, uh, I mean, I I thought he was a series lead and he didn't need anybody else to be in the show. (laughs) So I wanted to give him some familial conflict. And that's where the whole concept of his father coming in. Also, at the time, I was studying karate and very much into the Uh, martial arts. Okay, okay. And I said, well, how can I use my martial arts? You know, the tuition for a daily karate lesson is not cheap. How can I write this off? So I figured <laughs> if I use my karate background in writing a script, I can justify writing off a year's worth of lessons, right? See, and once again, we have major component of Star Trek lore to be thanked. Uh, <laughs> yes. We can thank the IRS. For. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Bojitsu. So that's, so that's really where that whole thing theme and and i knew i wanted some action because so much of star trek to me was kind of this ponderous dialogue and people talking about what was happening instead of actually seeing what was happening and the internal the personal conflicts were all verbal 
Nobody was right. lashing out at each other. And, and I'm not a big fan, never have been a big fan of the heroes solving things by pulling out a gun and killing the villain. Uh, right. That's, that's the easy way out as a writer, in my opinion. Well, in Star Trek also, sometimes the easy way out is just to tech the tech until the tech techs. You yeah, know, please. That's the yeah. other, right. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't – I could, could not abide that. Well, so was this I your want, first – was this your first uh, assignment, more or less, walking in the door? Was they had this script that the, – these drafts, our document this week, are these two early drafts by David Assail who uh-huh. had sold it. And they looks like they'd let him take two shots at a script after he sold his story, uh-huh. and then it, it you read them. And you see the bare bones of a story, uh-huh. Riker and his dad conflict, and you see Pulaski uh, and his dad getting along. But it's just it, – it's, it is. It's just talk and people talking about things. And what you – you know, t- took it up a notch obviously when it – Well, got- yeah. I just, I just wanted to have some good action, and, yeah. and I, knew that, I knew that Jonathan could pull it off uh, from a physical standpoint, you know, big, strong, athletic guy. And uh, so that, that's kind of where that all came from. Uh, I don't you, even. Re- you said I'm Bert, sorry. you said Bert Armas had it for a minute on his way out the door, and then it became your. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't really recall what the dynamics of that were, or how I got the assignment, or that script fell into my onto my desk. But to me, it was a soap opera, the whole thing, and I just wanted to put some, you know, bring some action into it and make it as personal as possible, and you know, give give Riker some serious, you know historical obstacles to overcome mm-hmm. from a personal standpoint. Uh, your, your take uh, on the family angle is interesting because eventually they came around to uh, to filling in people's families and backstories as the series you know matured. Hmm. But in uh-huh. the beginning, yeah, there were lots of gaps in a lot of people's, a lot of the characters' backstories. So you, you were a little, it seemed like you were a little ahead of the curve. I almost wonder. Well, it's all about character. Yeah. You know, you, you, I don't care what the setting is, whether it's a star, a Starship Enterprise or the Gobi Desert, if the characters don't have something to do, what's the point, you know, uh, in, in terms of classic mm-hmm. screenplay work, you have to give the characters tremendous obstacles to overcome. Without that, it's literally time to go look for some more popcorn. Did you – now, you said you weren't a Star Trek fan. Did you have any affinity for science fiction in general? Um not really. Okay, you no, really I mean, were a fresh take then. I mean, I love Charles. I, I loved reading Charles Beaumont, um, some some of the early novelists. You know, mm-hmm. Asimov, those guys, but not on television. You know, I mean, well. <laughs> I just, I mean, or in the movies because you know it wasn't very well done in those days, right. frankly. Right. Well, that's what propels actually the original Star Trek that you didn't like the pajamas for was it was actually a few steps ahead of what else was on camera at the time. You know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, pretty- I came from the the generation of Robbie the Robot. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a man walking around in a tin suit. So I just wanted to avoid all that kind of stuff. I wanted to make it as I, I was really the, uh, if anything, I was the the anti technology writer on the team. <laughs> I just was trying to avoid technology at all costs because that Bible sat on the corner of my desk unopened. <laughs> well, I think you would have – it's it's ironic. What I started to say was it's ironic to me because that became kind of the driving – out of the gate they were looking at the planet of the week and the culture of the yeah, week and all yeah, that. And right. and the pillar era and then DS9 and the and the shows down the line really tried to there, – there were anti-tech 
factions yeah. there that were trying to right. get back to the heart, uh, obviously, of the, of the characters. But now it looks the, like – oh, go ahead. Now, now the, the first three days I was there, of course, I'm just kind of floundering around looking for the typewriter ribbons and things like that. <laughs> and I got invited to go to lunch with Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd only met the man in my initial interview, which, as I said, was fairly cursory uh, in that he didn't say very much. And then I get a call from his secretary, Gene wants to have lunch with you. Okay, great. It, immediately you think – I'm now the golden child, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's taking me to lunch. <laughs> and what he really, what he was really after, as it turned out, was somebody to go to lunch with. It wasn't really a matter of me being, you know, the chosen one or anything. But I do recall that day vividly. He at that time he had a, he was driving a black and pistachio green Rolls Royce, and the I just remember the. The upholstery in that car was so nice. <laughs> it had cream-colored piping on beige upholstery. It was just really nice, you know, Connolly leather, that sort of thing. And it took me up to the St. James Club up on Sunset oh. Boulevard. Uh-huh. And I'd never been there before, and I, I'd even been—I was born and raised in L.A., and I'd never been through, through the doors. And we had a terrific lunch. I believe I had the cold poached salmon with cucumber slices, and he had a large and he had a large shrimp cocktail and about five martinis. Now, I was not a drinker at all. I didn't have a beer until I was thirty-five. So I'm watching this guy down martinis, thinking, "Who's driving home?" And uh, the best of old Hollywood, Bob. Yeah, That's- it was it was a remarkable lunch uh in he told me his entire life story which was fascinating i wanted to do a movie about his life mm-hmm. having been a former policeman and then breaking into television as a writer and just an interesting guy and, and quite a quite a rack and tour at lunch i think the martinis helped a lot <laughs> they but, always do did, but, did, uh, did you actually talk about star trek or was it all just to get to know you it, we did talk about star trek because he came around to the point of saying look don't do anything I wouldn't do. And I'm supposed to know what that is. So, yeah, I mean, he was very adamant about that. He said, this is my baby. And, you know, the studio thinks I don't know what's going on, but I know everything that's going on. And, and apparently he was having a lot of political problems mm-hmm. with Paramount at the time, uh, having to do with budget, etc. Because I had a very long production background before I even sold my first script, I assured him that I was cognizant of what a scene could cost when I wrote it. And that's another reason I kind of uh, eschewed the technical mm-hmm. and went more for the character stuff because that's the cheap stuff to shoot. Not only did I find it more interesting, but I knew that from a, a budgetary standpoint, characters dealing with each other is much more cost effective than a character being tossed out into intergalactic space and fighting his way back. Right. Or playing Ambo Jitsu on the surface of an asteroid with no gravity. Just put yeah. him in the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Just put him exactly. in a room. Put him in a room. So he and I had that kind of a conversation, and I think he liked hearing what I said, particularly when I said, I'm not going to waste your money. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't order dessert, for example. I think that, that served me well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a little I metaphor. Showed rest- yeah. I showed restraint. Right. Well, yeah, Bob Justman, who was the who is uh, the infamous uh, great other one of the other two or three founding hearts of Star Trek, was also <laughs> like the. But they'd say he could weigh a script in his hand and tell you to the penny how much it was going to cost to shoot in that draft. So well, Bob Justman, <laughs> Bob Justman was a very reasonable, business like guy. Uh, I recall that he dressed well every day. 
He, I mean, he dressed for success. Mm-hmm. He looked like he belonged in a bank, and he and he acted that way. He was not one of these inflammatory people who throws a script across the room and says, "We can't shoot this crap." You're, and you're talking about from the '60s, there, your memory. Yeah, 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 because he was he worked the first year of Next Gen, which would have been before your time. So, uh, but you're, but I, but I, you're but going, I had yeah. mm-hmm. I had known of him much prior to that, so I knew that his reputation was rock solid. Uh, I think guys like Livingston stepped into some pretty big shoes, frankly, um, and I'm not sure how how they managed the politics, but uh, I knew Mike Schoenbrunn, who was, I believe, the production executive in charge of the show at the time at Paramount, and I had known Mike since his days as a second assistant director, so he and I had a good relationship, and it was kind of fun to see each other again. Uh, and he well, yeah. he gave me the he gave me the wink too because we had both been raised by. Uh, the line producer of Mission Impossible and Mannix, a man named Barry Crane, uh, and we had been raised by him, really trained and mentored uh, with a very keen eye to the production costs mm-hmm. and understanding exactly what goes into shooting something and how to tear a script apart, basically. So when I showed up and Mike walked in and he's wearing, he, you know, he's an executive now, he's wearing a coat and tie, and I hadn't seen him dressed like that ever. And he gives me a wink. He says, you know what you're doing, right? And I said, yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to create any storms. <laughs> they actually had a few going on at the time, so you were really good not to add to right. add to that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So the Icarus Factor was more or less, I, I, I don't know if they were able to let you see scripts or screen, but you jumped in, brought the script, as we can see from these drafts this week, uh, like you said, a lot more laugh, a lot of doing, not so much saying. And then your other actual credited credit uh, alone was for Samaritan Snare, which is all I have to do is say one word, Packlids, and any Star Trek fan knows what we're talking about. So where in the world did that come from? It came from my absolute irreverence for the material in that, (laughs) again, I thought technology was a poor excuse for writing. And I really was, I mean, I, I have an innate irreverent DNA to begin with. And I just couldn't believe that everybody traveling through space was so brilliant. And I wanted to create the antithesis of our group, of the Starfleet, if you will. I mean, our people are, everybody's got a six pack and they're tucked in and they're, everything is skin tight and they look fabulous. I wanted the exact opposite of that. Um, and, and so I created <laughs> so I created a race of I created a, a race an alien race of stupid people. Yeah. So that's really where that came from. Um, and I had a lot of fun with the the character names of uh, I think was it uh, Grebnedlog, uh, Tre- Trevor Grebnedlog and Mott Reganog. Oh, you had two names. Okay. There are two. There yeah. there are two characters. There's there's Mott Reganog and Trevor Greb. I can't pronounce it any longer. And those are actually, uh, before I was, when I was a child, my last name was Goldenberg, Robert Goldenberg. And Trevor Gregg is Robert Goldenberg backwards. And, so it is. <laughs> and Mott Ma, Reganog is Tom Doniger backwards. And Tom Doniger and I were good friends in the eighth grade. So I just thought it would be fun to do stuff like that. And kind of my own little inside joke to myself, mm-hmm. if you will. I had had a serious run-in with Patrick Stewart on the prior episode that I worked on, The Icarus Factor, 
in oh. that I was called to a cast reading. They had table readings prior to every episode in which they brought in a catered lunch. And I remember very well, it was a Chinese lunch and the food looked fabulous. And I sat down and got myself a plate and I sit down and I'm thinking we're going to go through the script line by line and everybody's going to read it. And I'm going to take some notes and make some corrections like I had done for years on prior shows. I mean, when I was doing Falcon Crest, we did that weekly and it was really kind of a nice time. I walked in, sat down, got my, my little plate of Chinese food and Patrick Stewart takes the script and throws it across the table and he says, who wrote this? That was my introduction to the cast. Okay. And I learned that I had been somewhat set up by Rick Berman for that meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I walked away from it. I remember the feeling walking back to the offices from the stage. And you know when you're upset, your face gets hot? Mm -hmm. I was so upset that having been called out like that, there was no reason for it. You know, if Patrick Stewart had problems with the script, he knew where I was. Rick Berman could have sent me down to the stage. I could have gone to his dressing room. We could have had a meeting and talked about his character, et cetera, et cetera. So my objective in writing the next script was to get Patrick Stewart out of the script as much as possible. (laughs) And that's why I sent him off to have his heart ripped out. Okay, then. (laughs) Because I had 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 other issues with cast in prior shows I worked Uh on. And, you know, frankly – Producing a TV show is not easy. It's stressful, long, long hours. And if you have a cast member who's a pain in the ass, they don't need to be there. So I had a kind of a history of killing people off. And boy, if I had written a third script, Captain Picard would never have survived. Wow. They could have let you do the uh, comeback from the Borg show the next year. Exactly. exactly. Um, so, well, that, so that's why he was in a, in a space shuttle going off with Wesley forever. <laughs> well, that uh, you, I don't know if you realize, but that whole episode of his uh, false heart, they, they played with that two or three times later in the series. Just well, that's so good. You were <laughs> well, good. Send me he's, the check. You know? He survived each time. Right. Yeah, right I'm sure. Right. I'm sure. So he and I had a real run in and I didn't really appreciate it much. And I, and I, I looked at Samaritan snare as just kind of a little bit of writer's revenge. And mm-hmm. I also had a lot of fun with it because it was so antithetical to everything I'd ever seen before on the show. I think that's what the, the charm of it was. And, and your t- subtext you were bringing to it, I think, has been beyond everybody until this moment. <laughs> uh, and I also enjoyed, I also enjoyed the enjoy. fact that showing that, you know, autistic people aren't stupid. And these guys are clearly autistic, right? I mean, the way they speak, you know, mm-hmm. we want to go fast, whatever <laughs> that dialogue. Uh, but they weren't stupid. They were actually very clever. Yeah, they're technological. They're handling, are handling the ships. They are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. they are there. Well, listen, we have crammed so much into this segment. I want to, we need to have you come back. And let's just talk about how this, we barely scratched the surface of, as I said, this this period in time at the next generation. It was, a, it was about to be a big transition. It was already coming out of one era. And uh, it's a Star Trek that we, a next generation that we really don't know that much about. Would you do that, Bob? Come oh, back sure, and talk, sure, talk sure. more about some of the folks. Oh, oh, you're talking about the politics? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the creative dynamics, all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Great, great, great. And, until then, I just want to suggest everybody go take a look at my podcast with my wife, Suzanne, oh, where, sure. Hollywood, where Hollywood Hides. Uh, it's on iTunes and on our website at wherehollywoodhides.com. And we uh, do a lot of celebrity and industry people 
some great interviews, people who are interested in the business and how to get into it, we have those answers. So uh, I just oh, suggest everybody take a look at that. A lot of stories of your own and oh, of, big of time. your guests. Big time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that too. We'll have you come back. Great. Okay. okay. Thanks so much for dropping by, and I can't wait to dig into um, <laughs> that cast of characters that season. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All these documents we're talking about are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, at learnimacheck.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.